pastors on staff, so glad that you guys are with us this morning. Uh, if you do got a Bible, open that up to Romans chapter 12, uh, Romans chapter 12 to the passage you just heard. That is where we're going to be. And as you guys uh, are finding your way there, uh, let me begin this way. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, uh, I had a thought that I think every middle schooler probably goes through or thinks at one point, and it was this. I'm kind of not that cool, right? Like, I'm not as cool as I want to be. I did not have riz, as the kids say these days, which if you don't know what riz is, that means uh, charisma, and all the Gen Z people right now are cringing at me because a geriatric millennial like me trying to use their slang just doesn't sound cool, right? But joke's on you, Gen Z. My kid's coming up, Gen Alpha. They're going to make fun of you uh, one day. You're not that cool. So booyah, as if, talk to the hand. All right, let me start over. It's eighth grade. Um, I thought I wasn't cool. And uh, I thought this so often and so much that, guys, when I was around my friends, this was kind of like the dominating thought life that I had. I, I, I was wondering this constantly. Do my friends think that I'm cool? Like, I hope that they think that I'm cool right now. But I didn't leave it at just the thought. This thought began to enact itself into a plan where I was going to try and convince them that I was cool. And I didn't have a lot going for me. I was uh, six foot in the eighth grade, which you would think would actually be awesome, but it's not because I was like five foot the summer before, which means it looked like I was a baby giraffe when I was playing sports. And um, I was kind of a nerd. I wasn't that cool. But here was my plan. My plan was if I could dress cool, then my friends would think that I was cool. And I was so committed to this plan, I literally remember uh, I would, my older brother, I thought he was the coolest thing ever, and so I would actually steal his clothes, pack them into my backpack, come to school, go to the bathroom, change, at the end of the day, literally go back in the bathroom, change back into my clothes, come home and throw his clothes back onto his floor. So Mike, if you're listening, I'm sorry, I owe you some sweaters from The Gap. Uh, but picture it, it's 19... 98, uh, young John Randall in the eighth grade has that fresh middle part, bowl cut, haircut, like I look like Dawson from Dawson's Creek. Um, I had the flannel button-up uh, shirt unbuttoned all the way with the white undershirt, the gold chain, uh, the baggy American Eagle jeans. Uh, this might have been a thing in Florida, but I had white Nautica shoes. Um, that was like the cool hip, uh, cool shoe. I don't know, maybe I, I might bring all this back, because last time when I was on UNC's campus, like, it looked like most students came out of a time machine. They look like they're from 1998 because all this fashion is coming back. Uh, anyway, here's what I discovered in eighth grade. Because the problem wasn't with what I wore or my friends or the fact that I wasn't cool. Because the problem was up here. The problem was my mind. The problem was what I thought. My thinking was off. Like, Check this. Like, I thought that, oh, if I changed my clothes, that would somehow make me cool. That didn't make me cool. That just literally left a bunch of uh, clothes in my brother's room that had middle school boy B.O. Axe spray was not a thing back then. Um, I, I thought I could make others think that I was cool. Guys, that's crazy. Do you realize what's happening in middle school? Nobody in middle school is wondering if you are cool. They're wondering, do you think that they're cool? Like, everybody's got the same insecurities in eighth grade. Nobody's thinking other people are cool. They're wondering if you think they are cool. At the end of the day, guys, to be honest, like, at, at, at this stage of my life, my thought life was so dominated with me thinking about myself to the point where I put on a mask 
and pretended to be something that I wasn't in the eighth grade. Now, even though most of us have moved on from being uh, 12 and 13 years old, we, I think we still have this same type of thinking problem, this mind problem, our thought life. I think this, this problem still exists in the church today. Because I think we think way too much about ourselves. If we're honest and we looked ourselves in the mirror, I think we would admit we think way too much about ourselves. And when we think about other people, it's always through the lens of like, what can that person offer to me? And how can I offer something of myself to that person that really shows me off? And when we think about what we do in the church, we're already set up for disaster because how we're thinking about ourselves and how we're thinking about other people is already off. This is where Paul's going to go this morning. What you think about yourself, what you think about others, what you think about what you are doing. Guys, this absolutely matters for us in the church because if we think wrongly, If we think wrongly about ourselves, if we think wrongly about others, if we think wrongly about what we're doing, guys, we actually will miss out on the will of God for our lives. Paul ends, just to give you some context here, Paul ends verse 2, so we started in verse 3, but Paul ends verse 2 of Romans chapter 12 telling us to have the mind of Christ so that we may be able to discern what his will is for our lives. The mind of Christ means that the way in which we think about ourselves, the way in which we think about other people, the way in which we think about this thing called the church, it's all through the lens of how Christ would think of those things. And so God's will doesn't start with you trying to figure out which path Christ wants you to take in life. God's will begins with you thinking like the person that Christ wants you to become, which is Christ himself. And I look back on my eighth grade year, guys, I regret so much of my thinking and my thought life because it was so self-absorbed and it was so selfish and it was so stupid. And I wonder how many of the things of the will of God that I missed out on, how many things that were good and acceptable and perfect that I missed out on that year. So church, let's not be a people that look back on 2024 with regrets, wondering, did we miss out on the will of God? No, let's be the kind of people that have the mind of Christ, that think rightly about ourselves, that think rightly about other people, and that think rightly about what we contribute and offer to the church. That whether we're cool or not, that the will of God would be true in our lives and that we would look more and more like Jesus. So with that, let's start with this first question. How you think about yourself. How you think about yourself. Romans chapter 12 Verse 3 says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. All right, what I want to do here as we think about what it means to think about ourselves is I want to break down this verse because there's a positive command And there's a negative command. Paul is telling us not to do one thing, and he's telling us to do something instead. Um, First, uh, let's go over this negative command. Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And I think we all know people like this, right? These are the kinds of people that think their stuff doesn't stink. 
It's a PG-13 way to say that, but we're in church. I'll let you read between the lines. Uh, we've all met people who think way too highly of themselves. These are the people that they can't shut up about themselves. Every conversation that they have with someone, it's always turned back to them. They're entitled. They expect everyone to cater to their desires and, their, and be on their schedule. They can't receive advice, right? Because they, I just know what I'm doing all of the time. They think that the way they see the world is completely perfect and accurate. Their favorite phrases are, I've heard this before. Don't tell me what to do. I already know this. They're self-absorbed. They have a holier-than-thou attitude. They're prideful, right? At the end of the day, these are prideful people. Now, the sad truth is all of us can easily think of someone who thinks too highly of themselves. Yet how many of us are willing to raise our hand and say, you know what? That might actually be me too. I'm the kind of person that thinks too highly of myself. And guys, this is how elusive pride can be. Because when we think we don't think too highly of ourselves, it's actually proof that we are thinking too highly of ourselves. Because only a person who would say, I don't think too highly of myself, would actually think too highly of themselves, right? Like, let me put this together. The person who says that they never struggle with pride, like if you're a person, I just, I don't struggle with pride. That's not one of my things. That is a prideful statement. Only a prideful person would say that. Only a prideful person would think that they never struggle with pride. That, by definition, is pride. And then this is so hard to spot in ourselves because even when we're trying to be humble, pride can slowly creep behind and be mixed in. Like the other day, I had a great day. I worked like a 12-hour day, came home, uh, and I, like, I was so tempted to just veg out and chill and do nothing um, but I had that little self-talk in the car. No, John, you're going to go home. You're going to play with the kids. You're going to help cook dinner. You're going to take the trash out without being told. You're going to put the kids to bed, right? I did all of that after working a 12-hour day. And then I go to bed. I'm scrolling through Instagram. And I come across this wife who is on a reel complaining about her husband. And my first thought was, not me. <laughs> I'm awesome. Like, I only not provide for my wife, but I'm, like, actually willing to contribute in the home, too. Like, I'm pretty sure if you were to go to the, the, the de- definition of humility in the dictionary, it would probably be a picture of me, right? That's, like, the thought that went through my brain. What is that, though? That looks like humility all on the outside, but on the inside, it's just all pride, right? So how do we counteract this type of thinking when we think too highly of ourselves? I think the rest of the verse tells us. This is the positive part of the command. Paul says, don't, that's the negative, don't think too highly of yourself, but instead, think about yourself with sober judgment. Now, what's interesting here is Paul is uh, correcting this way of thinking too highly of ourselves, but notice that he doesn't technically say that humility is the answer. It's not to say that, like, humility is not a, a, a bad thing. Like, we should be humble people. They, like, being humble is, is the opposite of being prideful. That is a good thing. That's just not where Paul goes here. Notice what he says. He says, think about yourself with sober judgment. In other words, you need to think about yourself the right way. Notice his specific language. That word sober judgment, what's the opposite of being sober? Drunk, which means you would have drunk judgment if you don't have sober judgment. Think about this. When you're drunk, everything that you have, your type of thinking, it's all impaired right? You think ugly people are attractive. You think that you are invincible, right? That's why everybody who said, hold my beer, has always followed it up with, 
I probably should have thought this through. <laughs> that, that's why Paul is saying here to use sober judgment. He's saying, hey, think this through. You need to see yourself in a clear and right way. Now, Paul qualifies how to do this, which is super important because the narcissist could easily think, I am thinking of myself in a sober way, and I think I'm kind of awesome. I'm kind of a big deal. No, 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 no. We don't get to determine, based on our own opinion, what a sober judgment of ourselves looks like. Paul defines what it means to have sober judgment. Let me read the verse again. For by the grace given to me, to everyone among you, not for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. How do we think of ourselves with sober judgment? It's the next line. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, this does not mean that if you believe something about yourself so strongly that it must be true. Paul's not arguing for positive thinking here. It's not like if you go into the mirror every day and say 15 times over and over again, I'm not a sugar addict, I'm not a sugar addict, I'm not a sugar, then that must be true. No, 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 that's not what Paul's arguing here. Instead, Paul is saying a sober or a right way to think about ourselves is this. All of us should think about ourselves by the same standard. We should think about ourselves on the same level. And that standard is this. We are sinners saved by grace. We all have the same kind of faith when it comes to the standard of what we believe. We all in this room, if you are a Christian and you've placed your faith in Jesus, then the standard for all of us, the standard of our faith, is that you are a sinner saved by grace. That word measure really means a specific measuring unit, like a ruler or a measure. It's actually where we get our word meter. And the thing about a standard of measurement, guys, is it's always the same. They don't make rulers where the inches are all like different lengths. No, the inches are always the same. One foot is always 12 inches. Three feet is always one yard. Eight ounces is always one cup. Standards of measurement are always the same. The same is true with our standard of measurement in the faith. We are all sinners saved by grace. That's what we put our faith in. One thing that I've learned about baking is that you need to be precise. Like, normally when I'm marinating chicken or if I have, a, like, a pot on the stew, like, you can kind of wing it, right? It's like throw in a little bit of that, throw a little bit of this in. I'm not going to really measure anything. I'm just going to throw it in there. But when it comes to baking, like cookies or cake, like, you better be precise. Like, one cup of flour means one cup of flour. Like, you can't just be like, well, I believe so strongly in my ability to bake that I am, I am going to determine what a measure uh, of one cup equals. I mean, you could do that, but everybody's going to think your baked goodies are hot garbage. Um, a cup is a standard measurement. One cup is always one cup. The same is true of our faith. We are all sinners saved by grace. Now, what that means then, the question that we have to ask ourselves is when you think about yourself, are you measuring yourself against that standard? Or are you measuring yourself against a different standard? Do you see yourself as a sinner saved by grace? Or do you see yourself as something other than that? When you think about yourself, is the first thought that comes to your brain, I am a sinner saved by grace. And some of us might need to emphasize certain parts of that line. Depend, or some of us might need to emphasize certain parts of the standard of our faith based on where we're at. Some of us need to see that we are sinners saved by grace. We're sinners saved by grace. Because some of us are so focused on our sin that we can't even see grace. 
we think we're so sinful that grace can't possibly reach us. If you have low self-esteem or what I like to call your syndrome, where you're just kind of walking around in life, I'm the worst, I'm just terrible, nobody loves me, right? You're from Winnie the Pooh. Like, if you have that kind of mentality, you actually have a form of pride. Because every single one of your sentences starts with me, myself, and I. I'm no good. I'm the worst. I, no one loves me, right? Everything is me. It's you-centered. You're self-absorbed. It's a form of pride. And here's the antidote for you. You don't need to think about yourself in a better or more positive way. You need to think about the fact that you're a sinner saved by grace until grace becomes sweeter than your sin and allow grace to overwhelm who you are. Others of you, you're in the opposite camp, and you need to see that you are a sinner saved by grace. You're a sinner saved by grace because some of us, like, we legit don't think our sin is that bad. But here's the thing. If you don't see your own sin, you won't see grace. Grace will become a generic thing. If your sin isn't that bad, then grace won't be that great. Now, I'm not saying you can't have self-confidence or a sense of self-worth. Like, everybody should have that. But if you have high self-esteem, guys, you need to know that pride is a slow creep. It's a slow creep into our lives. It's subtle. And the answer to your pride, the antidote to your pride, isn't to think worse about yourself or in a negative way. You need to think about the fact that you're a sinner, saved by grace until you see how much your sin needs grace. You see how this works with the standard of our faith and how we measure ourselves against it? Salt Church, the answer to thinking highly of yourself isn't to think less of yourself. It's to think of Jesus more. Let me say that again. The answer to thinking highly of yourself isn't to think less of yourself. It's to think of Jesus more. And when you think of Jesus more, you'll think of yourself rightly. The most sober judgment you can make about yourself is to see yourself in light of the cross. You will never find the power to fight pride in your life and to Think of yourself in a sober way until you see Jesus on the cross and how humbly he thought of you and how much, or how humbly he thought of himself and how much he thought of you. Philippians 2 says it like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Salt Church, Romans 12 begins with, in light of God's mercies, which means everything else that Paul's going to say in the rest of the book of Romans falls under that banner. We don't do and act and live and think in an attempt to earn mercy. We're doing all of those things because we have already received mercy. Because what Jesus has done for us, it now changes what we do for him. The power to not think rightly about, or the power to not think so highly of yourself and to think of yourself with sober judgment, it's found in looking at the Savior who went to the cross and humbly thought of himself so that he could think much of you. May this be what we think about often. It'll change the way we think about ourselves. Now, Paul's going to show us how to think of others here. How to think of others, which is the next part of the verses verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. 
So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Okay, so Paul is using an analogy here of a body. And he's essentially wanting to drive home two ideas about the church. One is that we're diverse, and two, we are united. We're diverse, and we're united. Those are the two things he wants to drive home with this analogy of the body. And these ideas communicate the same application, and it's this. We need each other. We need each other. And so the question becomes, when we think about the church, are we thinking, man, I need these people, and these people need me? Guys, if we're not thinking that, we're not only thinking wrongly about the church, but we're thinking wrongly about what people ultimately need. You and I need the church. We need each other. Let me show you this. The first idea that Paul communicates here is that we are diverse. We're diverse. Notice in verse 4, he says, all the members of the church don't have the same function. In your body, the eye or the nose or the ear, they don't all have the same function. The same is true in the church. None of us all have the same role. We're all diverse, which means we need each other because we're all offering something unique. No one in this room has all the talents and all the resources and all the influence. It's spread out amongst us. Why? So that we would know that we need each other. Now, here's the thing. I don't think the thing that will kill our diversity or harm or hurt or threaten our diversity is uniformity, the opposite. It's not like, I'm not arguing that we should just all go be cookie-cutter Christians and we should make each other all look the same. That's, that's not what I'm arguing. I don't think that's a good thing either. I'm just saying that's not the greatest threat to diversity. The greatest threat, I think, to diversity in the church is self-sufficiency. Because here's the thing about self-sufficiency. It, it stops using sober judgment and sees ourselves as sinners in need of grace. And instead, we start seeing ourselves in need of no one. One thing um, I love uh, about my wife uh, is that she is so uh, servant-hearted. Uh, she absolutely loves people. It doesn't take much for you to be her best friend, uh, and she will uh, shower you uh, with anything that you need. If you're hungry, she'll cook you a four-course meal. Uh, if you're lonely or bored, she'll invite you over to the house to hang out. Um, if you're sick, she's going to run to Walmart, probably buy every medicine known to man, a box of tissues, and be over at your house immediately. Uh, she just loves people ferociously. Uh, but a couple years ago, my wife began to notice that one of the things she doesn't do so well, she doesn't let other people love her well. If she was sick, she wouldn't really ask for help. If she was lonely and bored and somebody asked her, like, hey, are you okay? She'd probably be like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Even though she would really be bored and lonely. If somebody invited her over for dinner, well, it probably depends on what you're making. Uh, if it's... Uh, if it's uh, a meatloaf and uh, meat and potatoes, she's probably over your house tonight. Um, if it's seafood, you might not be her friend anymore. Um, but my point is this. Lacey is great at serving other people, but she wasn't so great at letting other people serve her. And I remember her telling me one night, you know, John, I've realized that when I don't let other people serve me, I'm actually robbing them of the blessing of being used by God. And it's a point of pride because what I'm really saying is I don't need that person. And I think this can be so true in the church, guys. We want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do everything ourselves and never admit that we need help. But when we do this, guys, we deny the diversity of the church. And if we deny the diversity of the church, we're saying we don't need each other. The second thing that Paul's communicating in here is we are united. We are united. Notice in verse 5, 
It says all the members in the church belong to each other. That means we're united to each other. We need each other. Just like in the body, the eye needs the nose, and the nose needs the ear. If you chop off your ear, that ear tissue does not survive on its own. It needs to be connected to the body because that's where it finds life. The same is true of the church. We're united to each other to show that we need each other. This is where life is found. If you separate and be cut off, then it shrivels up and dies, just like a, a body part would if you cut it off. Now, again... I don't think the biggest threat and danger uh, to our unity is division. The opposite of unity would be division. And again, I'm not arguing that division is a good thing. Like, we shouldn't all run around and be divisive people and just causing conflict for the heck of it. Like, no, 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 that's not a good thing. But I'm just not saying division or conflict is the worst thing uh, for unity. I believe the biggest threat that will kill our unity is seclusion. I'm done with the church. I'm just not going to be a part of this anymore. I'm going to slowly drift away from the people of God. Because here's the thing about seclusion. It has the same problem as self-sufficiency. We stop using sober judgment. We stop seeing ourselves as sinners in need of grace, and instead we see ourselves in need of no one. Salt Church, can I just say this as blunt as I can? You cannot follow Jesus without the church. You cannot follow Jesus without the church, full stop. If the church is the body of Christ, then that means you can't look like Christ without it. You cannot be united to Christ and disconnected from his body. It doesn't work that way. You are saved by faith, but you're saved into a family. You are saved by Christ alone, but you're not saved to be alone. If we're united to Christ, it means we are united to each other, which means we need each other. And here's where this hits home, guys. The things that cause us to run and drift and seclude ourselves from the church, whether it's conflict or disappointment or hurt or painful circumstances in our lives, guys, those are the moments when we need the church the most. The Bible often refers to us as sheep. Do you know what the only defense sheep have against the world and things that would threaten them? They gotta stay together. They're big fluff balls. They've got no weapons to fight against things. They've gotta stay together. That's their only defense. The same is true for the church. We got to stay together. You drift off and you become slim pickings for a lion or a wolf. It's our only defense against the devil in the world is that we stay together. Check out this scripture from 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. I was reflecting on this and how much it matched uh, so much of the themes that Paul talks about in Romans 12. He says this, be sober-minded. There's our word. Sound familiar, right? What, Paul, what Peter's talking about here is like, hey, you need to be sober-minded about our enemy the devil. You don't have what it takes by yourself to fight him. You need the church alongside you. Because then he goes on to say, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How does he do that? He does it through conflict, through disappointment, through pain. And so Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. Well, how do you resist him? This is where I want to go. Peter says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, what Peter is saying is you're not alone. You have a brotherhood. You have a sisterhood. You have a family. You want to know how to resist the devil? Stay close to them. You're sheep. There's this thing called the church that you've been united to, and you need it. We need each other. Because I run into so many Christians who are believing the lies of the enemy when it comes to the church. I don't really need the church. I can worship Jesus on my own in the mountains with a couple of friends. 
I don't, I don't really need the church. Like, I, I don't even know if I want the church. It's full of hypocrites, right? I, I don't really need the church. In fact, the, the church has burned me so many times that I think I want to give up on it. And I just want to be like, really? Like, if you were to go to a gym and there's just a bunch of fat, skinny people trying to make themselves look better, are you going to be leave, leave and be like, nope, they don't all look amazing, so I'm not going to that gym? Like, if you were going to the hospital... Because you were sick and you're like, nope, there's no, everybody's sick here. I, I'm out. Like, you wouldn't do that if you're sick. You need help. So why do we do this to the church? We come into the church and we're like, there's a bunch of sinners in there. I'm out. What did you expect? We're sinners in need of grace. That's the whole point of the church. And it's just like the devil to throw a bit of truth at you to get you to do the wrong thing. Because the truth is, guys, you can worship Jesus on your own. The church is full of hypocrites, and the church has a long track record of hurting and burning people. I'm not making excuses for those, but so often we can use the truth and use it as an excuse to do the wrong thing, and the wrong thing would be to give up on the church, because if you give up on the church, you're giving up on the Savior who died for it. Jesus poured out his blood to save the church. He gave everything for it. If we give up on it, we're, we're giving up on Jesus. Truth is, we need you. Salt Church is not unique to any other church. We have blind spots. We have shortcomings. We have sin in this room, and myself and our leadership included, and we need you to help us see it because pride's a subtle thing. We don't always see it. And here's the thing. You need us. There's no perfect church, and if you were to find a perfect church, it wouldn't be perfect because you would be there. You have shortcomings. You have sin, and you need us to help you. We all need each other, guys. And here's the thing, if we all came together and stopped thinking so much of ourselves and we admitted our own addiction to self-sufficiency and our temptation to seclude ourselves from the church when life gets tough, I think we would see all the more how much we actually really do need each other. Because when that type of community takes hold in the church, when we're diverse and we're united and we need each other, because the world is going to look into this group of people and see Jesus. You know why? Because they're going to see his body. The same body that walked this earth 2,000 years ago and touched people and healed them. The same body that got in the dirt on the hands and feet and washed the disciples' feet. The same body that hung on a cross and poured out his own blood to show the world how much God loved them. Guys, that's what we are called to be. We represent Christ's body until Christ himself returns. May this church, when you peer into it, may you see Jesus and you see sinners saved by grace. May he get the glory. Lastly, how do you think about what you do? How you think about yourself, how you think about others, how you think about what you do. Last part of our verses this morning. It says in verse 6, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Okay, there's just some topics that Christians love uh, for some reason, uh, and spiritual gifts seems to be one of them. Uh, but I don't want to disconnect this and go on a rant here of spiritual gifts. I want to root this in what Paul is talking about here in Romans. Paul is saying, guys, what you do in the church, the gifts that you use, it's influenced by what you think about yourself 
and what you think about other people. So before I even get into this gifts uh, list, let me uh, give this caveat. If you think you can do everything in the church, or if you think you have nothing to offer the church, you're not thinking rightly about yourself. Additionally, if you, if you think some people in this room need to sit in the corner because they're kind of JV Christians and they shouldn't contribute to the church, or you think, I just get to sit back and watch the paid professionals do everything because I don't have to do anything, you're not thinking about church or the body of Christ the right way. Because the reality is, is every single person in here has a spiritual gift. If you have trusted in Christ and placed your faith in him, he's given you a gift. But here's the thing. The point of the gifts, they're not about you. They're about the church. You've been given a gift so that the church, the body of Christ might be built up to look more and more like Jesus. That's the point of the gifts. With that said, let me go through these, and I'll try to give some quick applications along the way. The first one's kind of the more heavy-hitting one because uh, everybody always wants to know about it. So um, I'll try to move quickly through them. But uh, the first one might take a while. Uh, prophecy. Um, there's a ton of debate surrounding this uh, issue of prophecy. I'm not going to answer everything here. I don't think Romans 12 is fully about prophecy. Um, but let me at least answer two questions. First question is this. What is prophecy? What is it? It's a specific word from God given to a specific person or place. That's the easy definition of prophecy, a specific word from God given to a specific person or place. Or put it another way, it's a revelation from God received by the people of God. A revelation from God received by the people of God. And prophecy can kind of take different forms. Um, Sometimes prophecy is a call to people to repent. You see that all over the Old Testament. Sometimes prophecy is insight into specific situations. Sometimes prophecy is dreams or visions or object lessons or even predictions of the future. So that's what prophecy is. I want to answer the second question because I think it might be more important. How do we use prophecy? How do we use prophecy? Now, full cards on the table here at Salt Church. We believe that the spiritual gifts that you see in your New Testament, they are for today. They are for the church today. But as a church, we are always going to be guided by this book, which means how we use the spiritual gifts will always be guided by what the scriptures say. And Paul tells us in this text how to use prophecy. He says, use prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, in proportion to our faith doesn't mean the amount of faith you have. It's not like, oh, I believe this so strongly, therefore it must be prophecy and it must be true. No, 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 no. Paul is using the word faith here the same way he's using it in verse 3. He's not talking about your personal faith. He's talking about the collective faith of what we believe as a church. He isn't talking about how much we believe, but rather what we believe. It's our doctrine. It's our theology. It's what we confess of to believe is true of our faith. He's, in other words, guys, he's talking about the Bible. Paul is arguing that prophecy will never contradict Scripture. It always comes underneath it. In fact, I would argue, guys, prophecy does not carry the level that this book does. It doesn't have that kind of authority. Prophecy is, always, is, un, is not only submitted to the Bible, it doesn't carry the same authority as the Bible. There's this crazy scene in Acts where the Apostle Paul gets a prophecy about going to Jerusalem, and they're like, don't go. You're going to get imprisoned. What does Paul do? He actually disobeys and disregards that prophecy and goes to Jerusalem anyways and still ends up in prison because the prophecy was true. Because I think at bare minimum, that means the gift of prophecy is not binding on us like Scripture. And can I be so bold to say this? If and when we use the gift of prophecy, 
Guys, we should never say, God told me to tell you. God told me to tell you, fill in the blank. We should never say that unless you're following that up with a Bible verse. God told me to tell you. I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2. Like, okay, then yes, you can say that because God, all scripture is God breathed. But if you're coming to someone with the gift of prophecy and your leadoff statement is God told me to tell you, no, you're doing it wrong. You know why? You're thinking way more highly of yourself than you ought to. Instead, you should come and say, I think, I think this might be from the Lord, but let's test it together. That would be a much more humble way to approach the gift of prophecy. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 20 through 21, I think gives good handles on this gift. It says this, do not despise prophecy, but test everything. Hold fast to what is true, or sorry, hold fast to what is good. There's two different ditches we can fall in the church. Some of us in this room, we actually just straight up despise prophecy, right? We've seen this gift abused. It freaks us out. So we just write it off, right? Uh, I don't want anybody who comes and speaks to us prophetically, don't want it. Because we're actually disobeying scripture if we just do that. We're despising it. And then others of us fall in the other ditch where anybody who comes to us and says, thus saith the Lord and claims to be a prophet, we just take in what they say wholesale. And we're gullible. Oh, you must have the gift of prophecy, so I'm going to receive it. No, 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 guys, the gift of prophecy is not infallible. Paul would not say to test prophecy if prophets were just accurate 100% of the time. If we're called to test it, that means prophecy can be wrong. Some of us need to learn to test things and hold on to what is good. This is why the church, guys, is so important. If we're ever going to do prophecy well, we need to know each other in the church so that when we test prophecy together, we can say, this is good, let's leave the rest aside. All right, let me speed this up and move through the gifts. Uh, second one is service. Service is exactly what you think it is. It's people serving. Uh, and a great example of this in our church is all you incredible people on our serving team. You show up at 7 a.m. to unload that trailer. You uh, show up for kids ministry and serve in there. You're uh, on the greeting team. Briley does an amazing job of, of scheduling all of those teams. Um, maybe even you're hosting a home group. Like th- That's a, an example of an act of service. Third one is teaching. Because teaching isn't just limited to the pulpit and what I'm doing up here. Most people think teaching is getting on a stage and and doing this form of teaching. That's not the only teaching he's talking about here. Teaching in the kids' ministry, guys, that takes a way different gift set that I I don't have. But that's still teaching. Teaching in a home group, another skill set. It's still teaching. And many of you guys have the gift of teaching, and you've offered it in those settings. Uh, The fourth gift, exhortation. Guys, exhortation means to counsel other people. The word that he uses here... uh, that Paul uses here is the same word to describe the Holy Spirit in John 14, 26, when John says that the Holy Spirit is the counselor, the advocate. It's the same word for exhortation here. And exhortation is used two ways in the scriptures. On the one hand, it's pleading, it's urging, it's inviting people to do something, and it's encouraging and comforting and strengthening them. Guys, flattery is not a gift of the Spirit. If you're one of those people that just go up and compliment everyone all the time, Like, that's not a gift of the Spirit. We also have to help people see their failures. Likewise, criticism is not a a gift of the Spirit. If you're the kind of person that just goes up and says what people are doing wrong all the time and you never celebrate them, like, that's not the gift of exhortation. You need both. You you need to say, hey, I want to help you grow in this area, but also, man, good job over here. It's uh, It's both helping people see Uh, their failures, and celebrating them at the same time. The fifth gift is contributes. Some of you guys have jobs that make lots of money. And that's a great thing, believe it or not. 
don't, like, I talk to people, uh, especially when they're younger, and they think, oh, I just got to get out of this job that's making, uh, you know, six figures so that I can go do something spiritual like be a pastor or be in the ministry. No, you don't. God's given you a gift to make money. You need to leverage that position for the kingdom of God. Now, let me be clear. Uh, making money is not a sin, but the love of money is a sin. When you love money more than people, that is a sin. And here's the scripture is even uh, uh, more stark with it than that. Guys, with riches just come a whole lot more temptation. If you have a lot of money, it comes with more temptation. That's just the reality of it. And yet at the same time, it also comes with a lot of opportunities to be generous. And I also want to encourage people just because, like, you don't have to have a lot of money to have the gift of uh, contributing with generosity. You can be poor and still have this gift. I know this because in the New Testament, there's a scene where this poor widow is commended by Jesus for her gift of generosity more so than the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees gave out of their abundance. It wasn't sacrificial. It was out of their bank account, and they didn't even see it. They continued to just live the same way that they've always lived, right, even though it was a lot of money that they were giving. Whereas the widow, she's commended by Jesus. Why? Because she gave all she had. It was sacrificially. It cost her something. And I'm not saying you need to give till you're in the poorhouse, but I do think this means that God wants us to contribute in ways that are sacrificial, and cost us something. And whether you have a lot of money or a little money, you can have that gift. And can I just take a second here and say thank you to the many of you who have used this gift in our church. You've contributed and given sacrificially in amazing ways. You've lived differently so that this church could make a difference in this city. And guys, we couldn't have done this without you. We, can, can, we can't continue to do this without you. Your gift matters. The sixth gift here is leadership. Leadership in God's kingdom is defined by going to the bottom and not trying to get to the top, right? It's servant-hearted. It's not self-interested. So when Paul says to lead with zeal, he's saying leaders should passionately and intensely put others ahead of themselves. There's a great example of this in the New Testament with Titus. Paul uses the same word zeal there to describe him, and he says, man, this guy cared about you so much with zeal that he actually paid his own way to come visit you guys in the church. And what Paul is saying here is, man, this guy put you so far ahead of himself, that's what makes him a good leader, that he was willing to, with zeal, pay his own way and not be a burden to you. He cares and puts other people above themselves. That's the sign of a good leader. And the last one is acts of mercy. We're all called to have mercy, uh, but some of us just, I think, have incredible patience and care to enter into spaces where mercy is just really needed. Um, if you're a nurse, you probably have this gift. That you need to have this gift if you are a nurse. Um, and uh, all twos, I think on the Enneagram, would probably also uh, have this gift of two. But notice, notice a gift of acts of mercy. But notice what it says here. We need to do acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So often we want to do acts of mercy solely for the purpose of others noticing us. And when we do that, guys, it just creates bitterness. There's nothing worse than when I am in my house and I'm, I'm doing the dishes and I'm just huffing and puffing and complaining the whole time and I'm giving my wife the stink eye, and I'm like, girl, you better notice me. Look at what I'm doing. And then look at this act of mercy, right? But guys, that's not mercy. That's just mean, right? All right, that's the list uh, that we went through here. Uh, it's not, here, here's the thing. It's not an exhaustive list, right? So often when we come to this, we're like, well, my gift wasn't in here, so apparently I don't have a gift. No, 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 no. The list is not exhaustive, and I think Paul is doing that on purpose so that when we think of the church and when we think of ourselves, we remember, guys, this isn't about us. It's about Jesus and what he 
uh, is doing in our midst. Now, at this point, everyone wants to know what their gifts is. Right? How do you know what it is? There's no shortage of tests that you can take online. I think most of them are hot garbage, but uh, you can take a test. I don't care. Uh, but I do think the test uh, gives a, uh, the text, not the test, gives us a better way to figure out our gift uh, than uh, an online spiritual gifts test. Verse 6 says it this way. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. You want to know the best way to figure out your gift? Go use it. The truth is you don't even know what you're gifted at until you begin to use that gift. So just jump in somewhere. Start serving. You'll figure out whether it's a gift along the way. Ask yourself, am I passionate about this? God wouldn't give you a passion and then not give you a gift alongside that, right? Like, you're not going to be like, um, like, don't overthink it. Like, if you're passionate about something, it probably means that God is giving you a gift for that area. Ask yourself where you've seen gaps and needs in the church. If you come to us and say, oh, I think you guys should start XYZ ministry, I'm going to look at you and say, great, I think God's calling you to start that ministry because God's clearly put it on your heart. Ask others what you are good at. I thought for years I was going to be a worship leader, and I had to have some people say, I don't know, bro. I don't think that's your gift, right? Also, we need to ask, who do I need to tell that they have a gift? So many people are just sitting on the sidelines not doing anything in the church because they're waiting for someone to tap them on the shoulder and say, you know what? You're gifted at this. You should jump in. Last thing I'll say on this, guys, it's not a license not to serve with your gift, right? So it's, it's not like if we come to you and we're like, hey, we really need help in kids' ministry. Hey, there's this need that you can contribute. Hey, there's this act of mercy that we all are asking you to contribute to. You can't sit back and be like, well, that's not my gift. <laughs> no, no, no. A gift is not an excuse not to serve in an area. In a sense, we're all called to serve with these gifts. Some are more gifted than others, but we're all called to help each other grow and mature and look more like Jesus as the body of Christ. I've already gone way too long, so let me close with this. When it comes to how we think of ourselves and how we think of others and how we think of what we do in the church, I want to close with these words from Philippians because I think they speak over this section of scripture. It says this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for each person here. God, each person came in here thinking some things about themselves. Each person came in here thinking about other people. Each person came in here probably wondering what they actually contribute to this church. Does it matter? Do their gifts matter? God, I pray that this morning, each person in here would have the mind of Christ, that we would come to you receiving the mercy of God for us, that we would see ourselves as sinners saved by grace, and with that thought, would we begin to treat other people knowing that we need them? Would we treat them with love and kindness and grace and mercy, the same kindness, grace, and mercy and love that we've been given through Christ? And in turn, would we see that we have gifts to use to help build other people up, to help other people, when they think about themselves, see that they're sinners saved by grace. God, would we use our gifts never as a platform and as a way to give ourselves praise? We're not that big of a deal. 
but instead would we use our gifts all for the glory of Jesus, that when people peer into this church, they would see people who don't think highly of themselves, but think of themselves with sober judgment. They would see a people that need each other when they see a people using their gifts to serve each other, that the name and fame of Jesus might be magnified. Oh God, would you do it in Saul's church? In your son's name I pray.